This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Today we're going to be focusing on the first publication in Rand's new strategic rethink series. This project began two years ago after President and CEO Michael Rich identified both a need to offer evidence-based, feasible policy options for decision makers and an opportunity to begin a public debate about larger strategic questions on which there is currently little consensus. So amidst war fatigue at home, tumult in the Middle East, and trepidations about Russian and Chinese intentions, Iran team led by Dr. Dick Solomon and Ambassador James Dobbins embarked on a project to take a fresh look at America's role in the world. Future volumes of this project will further develop particular aspects of national strategy, including national defense and intelligence, alliances and partnerships, institutional reform of the American system for managing national security, and the global economy. Today's discussion will focus on why the current pace of geopolitical change is no faster nor more significant than the upheavals in the, in, of the last century, the most significant foreign policy and national security challenges the United States will face in the coming years, potential options for policymakers, and the strategic framework with, uh, which these choices should be evaluated in, and how the United States can continue to preserve the international order that emerged after World, World War II. Leading our discussion today will be Ambassador James Dobbins, who is a Senior Fellow and Distinguished Chair in Diplomacy and Security at RAM. He has held numerous State Department and White House posts, including Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, Special Assistant to the President, Special Advisor to the President and Secretary of State for the Balkans, and Ambassador to the European Community. He has also served on multiple crisis management and diplomatic troubleshooting assignments in the Obama, George W. Bush, and Clinton administrations. We are also lucky to be joined today by Howard Schatz and David Ockmanek, who are co-authors of the report and other authors in this series. Howard is a senior economist specializing in international economics. From 2007 to 2008, he served as a senior economist to the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors, where his policy areas were foreign investment, the economy of Iraq, and U.S. exports. David is a senior defense analyst at RAND. From 2009 until 2014, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Development, and from 1993 to 1995, he served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense Strategy. So, with all the introductory comments out of the way, I'm very pleased to turn it over to Ambassador Dobbins to start our discussion. Thank you. Well, the, the volume that we're going to be talking about today is the first of a series, as mentioned, looking at America's uh, national strategy with a view to the upcoming election campaign and the decisions that the next uh, administration is going to be faced with. Um, we uh, divided this into uh, five sector areas and three geographic areas where we think the principal uh, choices are, are going to be uh, made. Uh, in the, uh, so economic, defense, counterterrorism, cyber, and climate are the sectors, and then Europe, the Middle East, uh, Middle East and South Asia, and East Asia are the three uh, regions. Um, we, uh, we, we begin by arguing that the challenges that, uh, that the next administration is going to face, while serious, varied, and in some sense new, are not out of scale with challenges that the United States has faced in the past. 
Um, uh, Russia is not the Soviet Union, neither is China. Um, the uh, the uh, Islamic State is certainly a new and difficult and rather horrifying phenomenon, but it's worth remembering that 20 years ago, uh, 8,000 Muslims were slaughtered in cold blood by uh, Christian insurgents in Srebrenica. So the kind of horrific violence that we're seeing uh, in the Middle East today is not unprecedented and has been dealt with successfully uh, in the past. Um, uh, what we've tried to do in each of these areas is tee up the likely choices that are going to be faced by the next administration without in most cases indicating uh, what our uh, preferences are uh, among those uh, choices. Um, the, in the economic area, um, uh, this chart is uh, designed to illustrate um, uh, the American uh, comparative capacity to lead. Uh, this, uh, this is showing you the percentage of global GDP that is created by the United States, Japan, the European Union, and China. And what you see is um, that there uh, has been a slight decline from a peak around 2001, but that we're back pretty much where we were in 1991. Um, uh, that uh, we've actually gained vis-a-vis um, -vis Japan, we've actually gained vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. China has, has grown uh, as significantly over this period, but I think the chart puts that in some perspective. Russia doesn't even appear on the chart, um, and the white space is everybody else in the world. So I think this is designed to illustrate that the United States is still the world's dominant economic power, uh, that the United States is still in a position to lead, and that indeed if the United States doesn't lead, uh, nobody else is likely to. Um, uh, so among the issues that we uh, uh, see the next administration faces is what to do about uh, trade liberalization. We tend to think that whatever may be said in the campaign, uh, the next administration, like every administration in the last uh, 70 years, is going to favor continued expansion of international trade. And so the questions are first whether to conclude the trade agreements that are already underway if they haven't been included by the Obama administration, but then what to do thereafter, whether to continue on a basically regional approach to trade liberalization, which is the one that we've been on for the last uh, several years, or whether to return to global rounds of negotiation that uh, try to include uh, all of the major trading nations. Um, a second area, and we'll come back to this when we do East Asia as well, is what to do about growing Chinese power, particularly in the economic, uh, trade, and finance realms. Whether to uh, alter and uh, adjust uh, these institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization, others, to accommodate uh, Chinese power, to give them a share in the direction of these that's commensurate with their uh, share in world trade and finance or whether to continue to try to maximize U.S. and Western authority and, and, um, uh, and control over these institutions and face the prospect that China will simply begin to create its own parallel uh, institutions which will attract others, including many of our allies. Um, in the defense sector, we actually offer four uh, alternate or four alternate defense budgets as a way of illustrating the choices um, before the United States and before the next administration. In fact, 
to some degree before this administration and this Congress. So the, uh, and this is a fairly busy chart and David Achmanek, my colleague, will be glad to answer more questions about it later. But uh, the first column has the uh, Budget Control Act figures. This is what the defense budget is going to do, going to be unless legislation uh, is altered uh, over the next six years. And uh, what it indicates are the things that you're not going to be able to achieve under that. So you're not going to be able to achieve the Pentagon's goal for force readiness um, uh, uh, under this. You're not going to finance the modernization of the strategic nuclear force, the Ohio-class submarines and other uh, uh, elements of the strategic nuclear force. Um, you're going to have a limited ability to execute the two theater strategy, which has been the long-term American strategy, this capacity to deal with two adversaries in two different theaters simultaneously if absolutely necessary. Um, what you're going to do in facing increasing improvements in Chinese and Russian air defenses is you're going to gradually see your capacity to do that deteriorate. Um, uh, and uh, the percentage of GDP that you're going to be at at the conclusion of the six-year period is 2.3% of GDP. Um, uh, the second is a slightly larger budget, which uh, improves in some of those categories. For instance, it, it achieves the uh, Pentagon's goal for force readiness. The third is the, uh, and the second one is the president's budget. This is what the president submitted. The third is an improvement on the president's budget. It adds another 500 billion over the six-year period. Um, and the fourth is uh, uh, what the National Defense Panel, chaired by uh, Bill Perry and uh, General Abizé, uh, came up with, uh, and that's again a slightly larger budget with a total of additional 900 billion over this six-year period. And this does fund all of those uh, priorities that I mentioned earlier. Now, what's striking about these is even the largest one is still represented a huge decline in the budget as a proportion of global G of, of, of American uh, GDP. In fact, we'll be under any of those, we'll be going to close to the lowest level we've been at since the Second World War. Um, so the, the, the increments are relatively modest compared to prior uh, spending. Um, in the counterterrorism area, we uh, highlight a couple of basic decisions. One is going to be whether uh, uh, the military can't the military component of our campaign against the Islamic State is currently adequate or whether it's going to have to be expanded. That's going to be something that's undoubtedly going to be debated in the campaign and the next administration will face decisions. Um, a second is uh, how, how widely or broadly to uh, interpret our, uh, our conflict with global terrorist movements. Are we going to, uh, to restrict ourselves to uh, uh, attacking terrorist groups that are dedicated to attacking us, or are we also going to involve ourselves in the, in the conflict with terrorist movements that are not directed at the United States um, in places like, for instance, Nigeria or Somalia or some of these others? Um, uh, and finally, uh, whether uh, the current largely kinetic approach to counterterrorism is adequate or whether we need to do a lot more in the non-kinetic as non aspects of counterterrorism, including community outreach, counter-messaging, counter-radicalization, uh, and measures to reduce support for violent extremism. 
So those, uh, those are the decisions we see in that realm. Now in the cyber realm, uh, the choices here are choices that the Congress is already grappling with, but which don't have definitive answers. They're going to require continued adjustment over time. And the basic one is the balance between security and privacy, uh, the degree to which we allow our, our state institutions to uh, monitor a behavior in an effort to protect us, and the degree to which we uh, deny them that capability. Um, uh, and a second question is whether or not we should be promoting international norms uh, regarding um, uh, online behavior uh, in an effort to deter state and non-state uh, attackers. Um, here, um, in a sense, it's a question of can you apply arms control of the sort we did with nuclear weapons uh, to, uh, uh, to the, uh, the, the difficulties of the cyber world and cyber attacks. Um, uh, many people have thought this, isn't this is not technologically feasible, and there's also a view that the United States is so superior that we wouldn't want to tie our hands by doing this. But it's a valid question, and I think it's going to require further um, consideration over the coming, um, over the coming years. Um, in the climate, we, this is purely a, 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 an international uh, and foreign policy study. We don't get into the domestic issues of climate change, so whether you need a carbon tax or a cap-and-trade system or some other way of reducing uh, carbon emissions, we're not, we're not dealing with, we're dealing with how to deal with the international. Uh, the, the, the challenge of climate change is, first of all, the, the, the single challenge that most requires uh, an international approach. The, no one nation, no, not even any combination of nations is likely to solve this problem. It is a universal problem. It is going to require every significant carbon emitting state in the world to collaborate. So it's a giant challenge in terms of global collaboration. And um, with the single exception of a nuclear exchange with, the, with Russia that would end life as we know it in this country, it probably is the single greatest challenge that the next administration will face. Um, so the first of the choices here is whether to lead, that is to actually take steps to reduce carbon emissions that are in advance of most of the world and drag other countries along with us. Did I just turn this off? Okay, um, or, or whether to uh, allow others to to uh, uh, to to, uh, to make the running and to and to follow along uh, in their wake, uh, and the second is uh, is whether to continue to operate within a global UN uh, sponsored uh, system which sets goals for the for the for the globe as a whole. Um, uh, and feed into that, or whether to do what we have done increasingly in, in the last year or two, which is go for bilateral and regional deals. Um, and clearly the answer is probably some combination of the two. But these are strategy decisions that, again, the next administration will have to face. Now going into the geographic areas, um, in Europe, uh, certainly one of the questions is how far to go in isolating and penalizing Russia for its aggressive behavior in the Ukraine, um, uh, given the need for Russian cooperation in other areas. We need Russian cooperation on Iran, we need Russian cooperation on Afghanistan, and we certainly need Russian cooperation on climate uh, change. 
um, just to name a few areas. And, we, and if we're ever going to end the civil war in Syria, we'll need Russian cooperation with that. So what's your balance between needing them on some things and penalizing them uh, and containing them in other areas? Uh, a second uh, question uh, is uh, whether or not we have a sufficient uh, force um, uh, in Europe, and in particular, in northern Europe to be able to defend the Baltic states, which are the ones that are most exposed to Russian power if Russia chose to move against a NATO member state. Um, uh, the current forces available are inadequate. Russia could overrun both Latvia and Lithuania, uh, I'm sorry, Latvia and Estonia uh, within a few days if they chose to, would, would face us with a number of difficult decisions in terms of retaking that territory. Um, does it make sense to prevent that by deploying forces that are sufficient so that they know they won't succeed and therefore won't bother to try. Um, uh, and, and then there's a question of what to do about the Ukraine. Uh, do we, uh, would we uh, find acceptable a, a, a Ukraine that preserves its territorial integrity but is, uh, it accepts permanent neutrality and forswears NATO membership and maybe even European Union membership? Or are we going to be left with a Ukraine that's permanently divided, one half of it or one proportion of it, uh, gravitating toward uh, NATO and, and, the, and the European Union, and the other half gravitating toward uh, Russia? Um, on the Middle East, um, uh, the question here is, uh, what is the mix of force and diplomacy necessary to end the civil war in Syria? We regard the civil war in Syria as the core problem in the Middle East um, uh, and more globally in terms of Islamic radicalization. We regard ending this war as an absolute prerequisite for restabilizing that region and reducing the, uh, the incentives for radicalization in the global Islamic community. Um, and so the question is uh, uh, how far to go in terms of collaborating with Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, uh, the countries that are engaged in, uh, on one side or another in the civil war uh, to try to end that civil war. Um, a second question is, um, assuming the nuclear accord with Iran is implemented, how far, how quickly to go in talking to Iran and seeking to cooperate with Iran in a number of other uh, areas, um, including Afghanistan, Iraq, and as I've just, uh, as I've just mentioned, um, uh, Syria. Now this is uh, not something that's only open to the United States, it depends on Iran as well. But the next administration is going to have to determine the degree to which there are opportunities in these areas. Um, uh, another uh, set of uh, choices in this area is what to do about the Israeli-Palestinian, whether to continue on the current track, which is essentially accepts the status quo, makes pro forma efforts to achieve a two-track solution, but never uh, exercises the leverage necessary to actually achieve such an outcome, um, uh, and, and accepts the current division and status of the Palestinian territories, more or less indefinitely. Alternatively, to make greater efforts than we have in the past to secure a two-state solution, which would certainly be very controversial. Or another controversial outcome is to actually begin to look more seriously at the one-state solution, which means instead of 
arguing for a separate state for the Palestinians, you begin to argue for their civil and political rights, including a particular right to vote. Um, and finally, um, the next administration will need to decide um, uh, whether to uh, continue with what the Obama administration's current position is, which is that we should withdraw all American forces from, uh, from uh, Afghanistan uh, by the end of 2016, or whether to retain a small residual military presence uh, in that country. Now, it's possible the Obama administration will change its position uh, before, the, it, before it leaves office on this, uh, but I would guess that in the campaign, uh, and particularly in the, when the campaign's narrowed to two candidates, they are going to have to have a position on whether or not to stay or go in Afghanistan. Um, and finally, in East Asia, we've already talked about the degree to which we accommodate Chinese growing power in appropriate means by allowing them to exercise authority and responsibility within global institutions commensurate with that growing power, or whether we continue to try to contain them, not just, geo not just militarily, but more generally um, in the economic and financial realms. Um, uh, uh, a second question more generally is the degree to which we balance containment and engagement uh, in dealing with an increasingly assertive China, particularly in the geopolitical and security realms uh, in the South China Sea and other areas where China is rubbing up against our allies in the region and where our allies are expecting us to back up their claims, um, including territorial claims which we don't recognize but which we um, but which we accept should be settled peacefully. Um, uh, and finally, a perennial question of what combination of isolation and engagement to employ in dealing with, uh, with the rogue state of North Korea. Um, now, we do suggest a few basic principles that, uh, that should underlie the response to these questions. One is that it's important to evaluate the trade-off between costs and risks. You can buy down risk <clears throat> by spending more money. So if you, if you see a risk of a Russian invasion of the Baltic states, you can buy down that risk by deploying uh, heavy American forces into the Baltic states at, at a level which discourages the Russians from even thinking that they might uh, succeed in a military adventure. So that's a direct buying down risk. Clearly, you can buy down risk in global in climate change by uh, cutting carbon emissions. Um, <clears throat> this needs to be an explicit part of the discussion as you talk about your objectives. And what you, you need to do in setting objectives to make a distinction between what you want to have and what you absolutely need to have. <clears throat> and to recognize that the difference between your minimum absolute requirement and your desired requirement probably entails additional costs of one sort or another, <clears throat> and is it worth those additional costs? Um, this is not to say you should immediately go to the lowest common denominator and only seek your minimum objective, but it does mean that a strategy should not only set broad objectives, but it should have implicit <clears throat> an ability to accept outcomes that are short of those objectives if they meet a minimum requirement. And what the minimum requirement is in a given situation isn't something you necessarily announce, but it is something that you should have in mind. Um, <clears throat> we also argue that um, 
there is always a danger of overlearning the lessons of the recent past. You know, it took the, the, this country a, a generation to get over the Vietnam um, trauma, uh, and we're going through a similar phenomenon now as the result of disappointments over the outcomes of our interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan, <clears throat> and disappointments over the failures of the Arab Spring to bring about uh, changes, uh, benign changes in the Middle East. But this doesn't mean that counterinsurgency, stability operations, nation building never works. It simply means that they are more expensive and difficult than <clears throat> the administrations who launched these uh, efforts understood. Um, it doesn't mean that democratization is impossible. <clears throat> We've gone from a world which had maybe a couple of dozen democracies to one that has nearly 144 democracies today. Some full democracies, some partial democracies, but it's been used close. And therefore, the setbacks in the Middle East that we've seen shouldn't be taken <coughs> to mean that our efforts at democratization never work. Excuse me. I'm getting to the end, so. Um, and finally, we argue that the underlying American objective shouldn't change. Uh, that for 70 years, the United States has pursued has created and expanded a, a rule-based global system, free trade, market democracies, peaceful settlement of disputes, and that, and that continuing to sustain and extend that global order ought to be our underlying purpose in the world. Uh, and finally, that the essential building blocks of that world are states. <clears throat> you're not going to build, you're not going to solve climate change without effective states that are willing to accept norms and are capable of enforcing those norms within their own populations. And this is true of every one of the conflicts and problems I've solved. They can only be solved through and with other states. And this means <clears throat> that not only do we have to work through and with other states, but in areas where states are weak, in areas where states are not capable of either accepting or enforcing norms, we need to work to, to strengthen uh, those states. Therefore, that state building is, has to continue to be an essential function of American foreign policy. So uh, those are our uh, basic uh, conclusions and our basic uh, proposals in terms of the likely issues that will face the next administration, and I'll be glad to take questions, and so will my colleagues. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.